anybody can hear me, that's fantastic. No, you can't hear me? That's all right. That's all for the better. Hello. Good morning. No, we're good. I'm not turned... I'm just going to stand up here and talk for a while. Yeah, we good? Good morning. There we go. Hi there. My name is Danny, and I am going to be your speaker this morning. <clears throat> so if you could just come back and find your seat, that would be fantastic. I, I have to admit that when I saw the snow this morning, I was hoping that nobody would show up. But here you guys are, so I better say something. All right. So, there's a group of men, and they were ushered quickly past a muddy courtyard, surrounded by barbed wire and guards that were armed to the teeth. They tried to get a good look around, but they were being pushed and prodded there quickly and harshly into a bleak-looking wooden structure. They were told to move into the center of a crowded room. In this room, the walls were stacked floor to ceiling with bunk beds filled with men that peered down at the new arrivals with looks of exhaustion and despair. So there's no room for all these new people that were coming in. And what that meant was space would be made. And what that meant was that some of the souls that currently occupied these beds wouldn't live to return. As the guards left, some of the men sat and began to pray. And one of the residents looked around at these newcomers and started to make a fuss at his fellow prisoners who had their heads bowed and were murmuring towards God. What are you praying for? He said snidely. That it would be, that would be me instead of you. The other man was appalled at this question. He's like, of course not. The first man answers back quickly and boldly. He says, who then? If not me, then who? And he starts to indicate at these other guys around the room. Go on, pick one. Pick one man that won't return. People start responding to him from across the room. Messages of hope and faith. And he shoots them all down. They say, please, they plead with him, please. The Lord our God can hear you, even here. As if his answer, as if his proclamations here would somehow bring God's wrath upon them. Or at least more wrath than already appeared to be on their shoulders. Oh, he hears, does he? He hears me and then does nothing about it? Well, then he's a bigger jerk than I thought. He's evil. And the room turns icy cold with tension. As he continues, he should be here in this prison, not us. We should put God 
on trial. Maybe then he will actually hear us. As this statement settles out onto the crowd, one man pipes up from the back of the room. He's like, so what are we going to do if it turns out God is guilty? Should we arrest him or wait for him to turn himself in? And then he bellows to himself in laughter. Have you ever wondered what it would be like for the people that were brought into these concentration camps during World War II? Have you ever stopped to consider the incredible pain that they endured in their bodies and in their minds and in their spirits? From our position, the Holocaust is just a a statement of fact in our history books. But if we pause long enough to ponder what was really going on, and we take a look at those images of the degraded human bodies and the mass grave sites, we can begin to understand the eerie hollowness and pain that is associated with that event. For those of us that have come to faith, we begin to wrestle with questions of why God would allow such pain and suffering to exist in our world. I point out this picture because as history goes, this atrocity is much closer in time to us than the time of the Old Testament. But the questions are the same. God's actions don't always make sense to us. And I hope, my hope here this morning is that we can figure out a way of coping with some of the more difficult realities of the world that we live in. So before we start our study of Hosea 13 and 14 this morning, let's, uh, let's open up our hearts to God's Spirit for Him to speak to us through this discomfort. Jesus, I come before you, and I just thank you that you've given us the opportunity to meet here this morning. And uh, I just ask that you would that you would come and help us to be able to sit through a passage in Hosea that's maybe not all that much fun to look at. And that as we feel a little bit uncomfortable with some of the ways that you have reacted to people in the past and some of the ways that we would like you to act and it seems like you're not, that you would help us to start to make sense of who you are and some of the purposes that you have for allowing us to go through these things. Amen. Does anyone here, by a show of hands, actually remember what Keith talked about last week? Or have you forgotten? It's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek because his message was about remembering. (laughs) The importance of remembering a God in the midst of our trials, or because of our trials, And today we're going to wrap up our series in the book of Hosea. I want to take the opportunity to examine just a slightly different element that arises as we study the text. Last week we talked about the importance of remembering God. And this week we want to look at why that's important. Why does it matter if we remember God at all? So to do this, I thought we'd move past some of the awkward sentence structure uh, that some of the translations have and said... To get a better feel for the mood of the passage, I'm going to read a text from the paraphrased version of the message. So here to set the context, 
The passage is God responding to the fact that the people have not remembered and have continued to live the illusion that everything's fine here in Israel. It says, you forgot me. So I'll charge them like a lion, like a leopard stalking in the bush. I'll jump them like a grizzly robbed of her cubs. I'll rip out their guts. Coyotes will come and make a meal of them. Crows will clean their bones. I'm going to destroy you, Israel. Who is going to stop me? Honestly, I have struggled over these verses the past few weeks trying to figure out how to make sense of them. And honestly, I can't do it. It feels impossible for me to feel good about the idea of God allowing, much less initiating human suffering. And yet, here it is. It's laid out clearly. I am going to destroy you, Israel. Who is going to stop me? God doesn't make sense. And I started to wonder, like the people that were in that prison, if I wanted to put God on trial for the, for the atrocities that these people are facing. And last week, Keith urged us to remember God. And perhaps these people wondered why they would want to remember a God that just threatens them all the time. Perhaps they wondered if God even existed at all. Or if this Hosea guy was just a delusional maniac. Maybe it's a little surprising that, you know, we're going to ponder the question of God's existence at a church service. You know, I'd probably be safe to assume that most of the people here believe in God or you would find something to do on a Sunday morning besides come here. If I'm honest, though, I sometimes have doubts. I got halfway through writing this sermon, and on my computer I, I was struggling and I was wrestling, and finally I wrote, does God even exist? Question mark, and then I deleted the whole thing. <laughs> this is my second draft. <sighs> sometimes I see myself in the eyes of my unbelieving friends. And it doesn't take much for me to realize that sometimes I might seem like I am the delusional maniac. Why would I believe in this stuff? If God isn't real, then how can we blame all our pain on him? Right? So let's take a look at this passage and see if there's any evidence for the existence of God just straight from Hosea. So we're going to look at Hosea 13 verse 4. I do urge you to follow along. This is difficult stuff. And use your Bible kind of as a life textbook, circle, underline, question mark, right in the margins. Things for us to remember what it is that we learn so we don't have to keep relearning the same things over and over. So Hosea 13, verse 4, here it says, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and then they forgot me. So here, Hosea is enlisting the idea of events from their history, where people had profound experiences, a point in time where God seemed to be a lot more real. I've had moments like that, uh, moments where I encounter a miraculous event, and 
circumstance where I see God so clearly, uh, there is actually one time uh, when a young person told me they had chipped the vertebrae in their back and uh, they asked for prayer. And I felt God was in the room and I felt this was a really good opportunity to pray. So as we're praying, someone prays that she'd be healed. And I'm like, this is stupid. You should not be praying for this. Like, what if God doesn't answer that prayer? She already is like, if he on if God even exists, I don't want her to like be totally disappointed when he doesn't answer. And then someone starts praying that she would be healed and that she would go to this she would go and have a miraculous event that would change her life, that the doctors would be mystified, that the x-rays would show that the chip was never even there. I was angry at this person for praying that. What made me more upset was it was my own voice praying it. And you know what? He answered that prayer. Her back was healed, and it was a miracle. And in the excitement of that moment with the adrenaline, God seemed so clear. But after the adrenaline dropped and my brain re-engaged, I started to question whether or not that actually happened. I was able to rationalize the whole thing in my mind. And I can do that with experience after experience after experience. And it's not only my own experiences and these things that I've seen happen that I doubt. I've even read scientific articles on how events such as the burning bush can be explained scientifically. You just take a natural gas leak, natural gas leak, combined with a dehydrated shepherd who is superstitious, and he's out there and he starts hearing voices. It makes sense. Experiences are subjective. I mean, even the Bible, when, when God gives Moses signs that he can go to Pharaoh and say, here, this proves the existence of God, and he does something miraculous and amazing, Pharaoh's magicians can do the exact same thing. Experiences are subjective. So is there any evidence provided by Hosea as to why the people would want to remember a God they could easily explain away? So let's look, take a look at verse 10 in Hosea 13. Where's your king? that he may save you. Where are your rulers in your towns of whom you said, God, give me a king and princes. So in my anger, I gave you a king. And in my wrath, I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. So we see the first point of evidence being historical acts. So the second point of evidence here is the test of their current belief system. At this point, destruction is inevitable. Hosea implores the people to examine if their trust in the king and their good luck charms is working. Throughout the life of Hosea, it's captured here in his journal. It continues to give people the opportunity to come back to a God that has rescued them in the past and could rescue them again. Instead, they look to the government to protect them. How about us? If we put our current belief system on, on trial, what do we put our trust in? Uh, Do we put our trust in the military might of North America? Well, that isn't working out so well, is it? How about the medical system? I was trapped in the hospital for 10 days, meaninglessly. I was like forgotten and put into a closet and never, never to be heard from again. At least that's how it felt at the time. My trust isn't there. What about a dynamic leader? A social program? Our retirement savings? Or our life insurance policy? I don't know what those things are for you. 
But here the people know the answer to that question already. When we look at verse 12 where it says, The guilt of Ephraim is stored up and his sins are kept on record. It's actually, history tells us that the people were actually taking their idols and they realized that these, the Assyrian army was coming in. They were taking their idols and they were hiding them in storehouses. Hiding them in storehouses until this Assyrian army would blow off and everything would turn back to normal and then they could rescue their gods back from storage. And the people here had no respect for God. They don't even have respect for their own belief system. If you have a God that needs you to protect him, what good is he? Yeah, they continued to trust those idols, even though the, these idols couldn't save themselves. In verse 13, God compares this action to a rather disturbing mental image. Okay, So it says, Pains of a woman in childbirth come to him. Now, having watched my wife endure childbearing four times, this was one of the most terrifying possibilities I could ever imagine. Can you see what that says? The pains of a woman in childbirth come to him. That sounded terrible. <laughs> now I was freaking out a little bit, actually, until like, I realized the him in this context was actually referring to the baby in the womb and not the man outside of it. So, <laughs> uh, So, it goes again. Pains of a woman in childbirth will come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. Now, some of the commentaries I read about this talked about how irrational of a picture this was because babies don't actually choose the time to be born. Okay? And so the analogy is really broken down. However, I was just looking at it and I was like, babies are not likely to be born if they're turned the wrong direction. Now, when women near the end of their pregnancies, the position of the baby becomes really important. And most of the time this works out Naturally, but from time to time, they have to enlist the services of a professional baby turner. And before I had kids, I had no idea that that was a career option. But however much uh, the baby may like it in the womb and doesn't want to turn into the position to come out and be born, we realize on the outside, the baby can't stay in there. It may be a really happy, warm place, but you can't stay in there. Not only will it kill the child, it will kill the mother. So, God is saying that these people can't see the evidence for him because they have their heads stuck in the sand. This brings up the whole question of morality. A question that there's a right and a wrong. And this is probably one of the most uh, poignant philosophical evidences for God I'm not, an, I'm not an expert philosopher, by the way, so if you want to read more about how that actually is proof, then I would suggest that you read something like C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity. He does a really good job of explaining all of that. And then after you learn it, you can come and explain it to me so that I would actually be able to make sense of it. But it kind of goes like this. If no God existed, and we were just the most dominant animal, animal species on the planet, we would just simply follow our urges without regress, regret or remorse, despite what the greater community thought of those things. And if we do find people with those kind of qualities living among us now, we label them as sociopaths, and then we lock them away from the rest of society. And the question is, why would we do that? If that's just a natural way of acting. And it's because not only do we have an individual sense 
of right and wrong, but there is a greater human standard of right and wrong. And where would that come from? That's the question. Where would that sense of morality, that sense of right and wrong, come from unless there was a greater being of God to institute it into us? So, not only that, is that the fact that God is not neutral on the morality front, as we're reading here in Hosea, that God is wanting to call his people back towards good. He sees them digressing and moving more and more away from the ways of goodness and the ways of love. And he's created people to be like him, and he's trying to pull them towards him so that they can experience more love and more goodness in their lives. And yet they don't want to turn and allow themselves to be born into this new life and this new way, new love and new goodness. So we have the evidence of the past, how God has worked. We have the evidence of the present, how is our current belief system actually holding up in times of despair. And we have the evidence of morality. And lastly, there's evidence of fear. So how can fear be an evidence of God? Fear must go hand in hand in love. Now this is a strange concept. But the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there must be something to it. And if I were to tell you that we had just gotten a report that there was a wild panther that had somehow gotten loose in the arena bowl behind us, there might be a certain level of fear that would rise in the room. If this was an actual legitimate thing, there might be a little bit of a fear. Even though you can't see the animal yourself, you have a fear uh, and respect for the power that that animal has to harm you or to harm the loved ones that you have that are closer down to that arena bowl. And this is the same way of, of God. We can't see him, per se, but we can learn to fear him and respect him based on how he acts in our world, based on how he shows his power. But unless we see a demonstration of that power, then we won't actually fear or respect him at all. So if God just merely threatened things and never followed through with these actions, then we would cease to respect and fear that God has the power to be able to change or do anything in this world. So, for instance, I wouldn't allow my child to run across the street. He may think it's a really fun activity, and my kids have tried this repeatedly. It seems like a really good thing, like an extension of our front yard, that there's no restrictions, and you can just play out there and have a really great time. But... Love is demonstrated in my case by stopping them because I feel like the consequence of playing on the road is to be feared. I have respect for the cars that come across the path of my child. So I have to enact a punishment to stop an activity that might be fun for the child, but is ultimately not for his greater good. So not only that, I have to instill a healthy fear in that child not to go onto the road. Maybe we point out a flattened ball. Maybe we show them roadkill. I don't know. Sometimes it takes graphic imagery to shock some fear into us. And God sometimes has to use corrective action to save us from succumbing to our sin and keep us into a position where he can actually work with us. If he removed all the consequences, then we'd have no fear and no respect of our situation. We would live in illusion of life instead of choice. 
so God to remove our choice would not be loving. For him to ignore us as we play in the street would not be loving either. I hope this is all making sense. C.S. Lewis seems to liken this to a master artist. If the artist creates just a little sketch for practice and makes a mistake, then who cares? Just throw it away. Start over. However, if it's his masterpiece, and if God looks at us as if we're his artistic masterpiece, then he might inflict pain upon that piece to make it look like the image he has in his head. Perhaps erasing major portions of it and recreating it. So as an amateur artist myself, I understand the pain of having to make major corrections to a piece. Like, I may have invested hours in it, but as I take a step back and I look at it, I'm like, that's, you know what, that's not right, and I'm going to have to redo a huge section of this. Even though it's not all wrong, it's enough wrong that it doesn't look right. Now, we're more than art, but we're still God's creation. And how much harder it would be as an artist to be working on a painting where the paint becomes sentient and starts moving around on its own. I can't even, even really comprehend that, but this is the problem that God is facing. Hey, it's like it's the painting, as it were, could choose to run off the canvas and have become a puddle on the floor, despite the artist's wishes. The artist, of course, would just mop up the puddle and dump it down the drain. It's of no use to any, anyone anymore. The paint might see that as vindictive and hurtful. How could the artist treat me that way? I am paint. But the artist just looks at it as wasted potential. What could have been a beautiful canvas is now a puddle on the floor. And we follow that out logically. As rebellious paint, we actually want the artist to love us less, not more. To allow us to take control. And that we know better that we're more merciful, that we're more knowledgeable about our situation than he is. So the artist corrects his work and it hurts us. But if there's no pain and no regret or remorse caused from negative consequences, then there's no fear or respect like we learned before. We would not know love if we didn't know pain. So here in verse 14, we continue reading. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Now, just a quick side note on this verse, as it kind of might seem familiar. It is quoted again in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, if you're interested in such things. But it seems like this passage is actually really difficult to understand for the commentators and for the translators because they all approach the passage in a different way. So if you look at your Bible, it may be translated different than how I just read it. And looking at the more literal translation, it appears that these bold statements are actually better translated as questions. So instead of God saying, I will deliver this people, it'd be more accurate to read, shall I deliver this people from the power of death? And if we look at the rest of the passage and the context that this is in, translating it in that way starts to make a little bit more sense. These are rhetorical questions. Shall I deliver this people from the power of grave? Hmm. And the answer is in the continuing verses. I will have no compassion. Even though he thrives among his brothers, an east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail, his well dry up, His storehouses will be plundered of all its treasures. The people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword, 
Their little ones will be dashed to the ground and their pregnant women ripped open. And here is one of the most uncomfortable passages of Scripture that we can possibly imagine. It is one thing to embrace the metaphor of God becoming a bear that will rip a predator attacking their cubs. But when it comes to reality, to watching ourselves and others be subjected to the pain, we want to jump off the faith train. When we look at instances like this, like the Holocaust, about what our friends and our family might be going through, comes to the question of why, right? Why did my brother-in-law have to die when he was 21? Why did my sister's husband have to have an affair so she ended up in divorce? Why did my friend get sick as a child and have to spend his whole life in the hospital? I can't explain and I can't answer these specific why questions to any level of satisfaction. Like, even if I stood here, up here, and I, I could know exactly what it is, what your why question is, and I could explain it out 100% rationally, it still would hurt. The why question might be completely answered and yet not answered at all. There's no doubt that pain exists. I've experienced it. So have you. I'd like very much to live in a world where there's no pain and no sorrow and no hurt and no regrets, but that's just not the way that our world works. Some of it's caused by our own action. So when I was 17, I made the stupid choice of climbing up on the roof of a moving car. Hey, despite my parents' training that you shouldn't play on the street or on the objects that drive on the street. So when I fell off the car, I lost the skin on the right side of my face. I had a major concussion. It changed my personality and made me really prone to depression, something I still struggle with today. I would have loved it as if I would have fallen off that car, the road would have turned into jello. That's not what happened. The painful moment in my life defined me. Would it have been God's mercy for him to turn the road to jello? But it was that painful moment that has become the defining moment in my life when God has gotten my attention. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5 that the poor in spirit are blessed. When we're at the end of our rope and we have nothing else left to hold on to but God, he becomes a lot more clear. It is my choice still. And if God would have removed my choice by turning the road to jello, then I wouldn't be up here. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to make a choice for him. And I call it a spiritual spanking. My parents spanked me, and what I broke out with was a cause of respect for others. Now, I'm not saying that you have to spank your kids. Man, I shouldn't have said all that. My email address is brad at jerichoridge.com. Oh, man. This is my case. Your case may be different. In my case, God couldn't just allow the natural consequences come to pass. But I wasn't living for him. I was living a double life. I would be all about God on Sundays, and the rest of the week I would just ignore him. 
The rest of the time, I would just spend my time speeding around as fast as my truck would go, putting other people's lives in danger. And I wasn't thinking about him when I looked at pictures of naked women on my computer. And I wasn't thinking about him when I compromised my integrity to join the groups that I was involved in. I was like that rebellious painting. I was like Hosea's unfaithful wife. I actually see the fact that he kept me alive as the miracle. He could have destroyed me, and he probably should have. But he didn't. And that's his grace. He could have let me die that day, but he didn't. Because my life was worth him risking, worth him sacrificing for me to be a part of that plan. You might wish God was different. You might wish for a God that didn't get angry with sin. And you might wish for a God that didn't correct us. You might wish for a God that doesn't punish. And if you wish that enough, he might grant you that wish. But it's not God, it's an idol. And eventually, when the time comes that you need saving, you'll find that all you have is your superstitions and good luck charms instead of God. Just like Israel, you'll be destroyed because you're too stupid to move into the experience of birth and new life. He's trying to be that baby turner. He's trying to move us into position. You may not like anything that I just said, and I'm okay with that. You may want to yell out sentiments of how the New Testament is different. So I want to read some of the New Testament to you. This is Jesus' words from Matthew 7, 22. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Do you want to actually follow God or do you want to follow the illusion of God, the one that you've made up in your mind? God gets angry. He gets upset. He judges. He punishes. That's the case. It does happen. What do we do? How can we actually know God? How can we be made right? And the answer is in Hosea 14. So let's just shut the book on Hosea 13 for a while here. Move on to something better. It says, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. You have to turn back to God and recognize where you've gone wrong. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. Now, if you want to read in 2 Kings 17, you can find about how this prophecy actually came to be. They're not mere words. God carries through and shows his power. Power of knowing what's going to happen in this world. Power of judgment. We saw the words of fear come to pass, not because God is vindictive, but because God is just. Just as those in the neighboring kingdom of Judah as well as us, as we read these words, are left to ponder what happened, left to return to God. God wanted us to use Israel's journey not just to make their lives better for the short time that they had on earth, but to save the world from the struggles and trials and worries that this world has to offer. All we need to follow 
All you need to do is to follow the roadmap that's left for us here in Hosea 14. That they were to return to God. That they were to admit that they were wrong. That they were to ask for forgiveness. And that they were to use their mouths to praise God again. In return, God makes a really beautiful promise. And he says, I will heal their waywardness. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I'll be like dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more do I have to do with idols? I will answer him and I will care for him. Like a flourishing juniper, your fruitfulness comes from me. <laughs> I know that some of you out there probably tune me out by now, and um, that's fine. I know some of you that are skeptical about well, the, the things that I've said. You might feel upset. Not everything I, I've said up here may even make sense to you. How can anyone feel like suffering is an indication of love? I don't know how that works. And it makes sense. And it's completely irrational all at the same time. And if I could figure out life on my own, I wouldn't need God. And I think God recognizes that himself in this passage because Hosea ends with this challenge. It says, who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. God's ways are right, not because they make sense to us at every moment, but because they are God's ways. You can either use them to help you walk, or you can trip over them. So I want to end here, and I want to leave you a challenge. I want you to look over your life. Maybe you write it out on a piece of paper. Maybe you make a flow chart. Mark some of the significant events that have happened for you in your life. The ups and the downs. And where has God been in your past? In the places where he's been more clear and more plain. And then take a look at the present. Where is God right now? What is it that you are putting your trust in? And they may seem like really good things, but they may not be the right things. And when push comes to shove, if everything in your life fell over right now, what would hold you up? Would it be your savings account? Would it be your family? Your friends? Or are you going to let God be the one that holds you in the midst of your pain? What's holding you back from experiencing the life God wants from you? Are you like that baby that's refusing to turn to experience new life and new birth? <laughs> from becoming that artist's masterpiece? It may not make sense. God doesn't always make sense. At least not in that moment. There's a reason for what he does. And we may never know that in our own lifetimes. But we can trust that even if these things don't make sense, 
They are right. What do you have to give up? What words do you have to say? What pain do you actually have to embrace? Once you give up your way of doing things and open yourself to God's ways, then through Jesus, God made flesh who came and he suffered himself. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again and was born into a new way of life and he's invited us to take part in that. So the rhetorical questions that Hosea asked in chapter 13 are answered by Jesus, literally. No longer is death the greatest obstacle. No longer do we need to labor in vain trying to avoid pain. Instead, we can cling to the promise that when we let Jesus have control of our life, that he can make sense of our suffering, change our perspective, deeply root us in his kingdom. Ultimately, death will not be victorious. And death will not sting. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor what is perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in a twinkling of the eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must close itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Pain sucks. It makes no sense. But God's ways are right. If you're experiencing pain, ask God why. It's good questions. Because he's the only one that's ever going to be able to satisfactory, give you a satisfactory answer. And if you see others in pain, perhaps God wants to use you to help them see him more clearly. Just like we have the world vision table out there today, maybe you have the opportunity to make a difference in one of those kids' lives in the name of Jesus, so that they don't need to question, why doesn't God care about me? But he wants to use you to make a difference in their life. If we can put God on trial, we may get burned. If we put ourselves on trial, then we can be saved and redeemed and ultimately changed. I just want to pray for us now in the that the team was going to come up as well. We have a chance to respond to Jesus.